As we come now uh, to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, um, now as we come to this word, I pray that you would grant to us real understanding, grace that takes that understanding and works it in us in such a way that gives to us hope, deep comfort, and a great desire to live. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, please. I want to read verses 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians and uh, chapter 4, please. Hear the word of God. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If I could, let me begin just brief, just saying something about how I approach our worship, our Sunday gatherings together. I, those of you who know me know it, I don't have a great deal to, a great need to explain myself. I don't usually do that. Uh, I always think I'm just self-explanatory. But, uh, but, but, but if you'll indulge me just a minute to, to share this, because I don't, as you probably know, approach these times of gatherings, uh, what word should I use, casually. Um, there's a, there's a, a profundity, there's a seriousness, there's a, there's a deepness about our coming together to worship. Uh, and there's many reasons for that. Obviously, worshiping God. That should still our souls to know that we're in the very presence of God. But, but also, because of the kinds of things that we talk about when we come to the Scripture. Uh, we, we talk about the Scripture identifies things that are real to our lives, that are personal, that are emotional, that are intimate, that are exposing. We talk about real life. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't joy. In fact, there's a measure of joy in everything uh, for the Christian. We'll get to that even today. But there's a measure of joy in in everything. But this joy isn't the joy of jokes. It's not the joy of of sort of anything manipulated. It's not the the joy uh, really of plastic smiles or any of that. 
It's real joy that's grounded in real truth, you see. Um, and, and so I believe it's important for us as we, as we come to worship that it's not casual. And by that, I don't mean anything about the way we dress. I mean, it's about the way we approach coming to worship together. And this isn't anything new, obviously. If, you, if you've been around us a long time, you know that this isn't because we just built a new sanctuary that I'm more serious. Uh, we're, this has always been the approach to worship, even when we were in an elementary school gymnasium with Smurfs as our primary liturgical theme every day, you know, hung up in the, in the, in the gym. I mean, this has always been the way, no matter where we've been, what we've dressed, any of that uh, music we've sung, always the way that we've approached worship like this. This passage is one of those that reminds me of that approach because it's about death. And how often do you walk into a room and people talk about death? That's not a casual topic. It's not a casual subject. We don't know how long it was between the time Paul left Thessalonica when he planted the church. And now it wasn't very long, months, years, between the time he left them and established this church and this letter, people in Thessalonica had died. And we don't know exactly why they died. I mean, people die. Let's face it, the believers there died. Moms, dads, maybe kids, grandmas, grandpas, siblings, friends, believers in Thessalonica had, had died, perhaps by the hand of those persecutors, oppressors that Paul so often spoke of. We don't know exactly why, but, 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 but Timothy had been there and he came back with this report to Paul and something about how they were grieving the death of their friends. These other believers caught Paul's attention and says, I need to speak to that. They knew, the church in Thessalonica, knew about the coming of the Lord. They knew about the second coming. Paul even said, you're awaiting the second coming. You've turned from idols to serve the living God, even as you wait the return of this one who's risen and, and will come. And so they knew about that. But, but, but it seems there are questions. Well, what about these ones who've died? We know Jesus is coming back. Well, they miss that. Where are they now? What about these ones who have died? And they were grieving in such a way over their death that, that Paul, since they didn't understand. So he said, I need to come now and, and, and give you truth. I don't want you, as he puts it, to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died. He says, I want you to understand. And once you understand this, then you'll grieve. You'll grieve, but you'll grieve in a way that shows you have hope. And you have hope because you believe, and you believe because there's truth about Jesus. You see? And so he wants to lay... They've been grieving in such a way that it's not noticeable through their grief that they understand even that they believe. And you see, we're to live, Paul's whole theme here, as I mentioned at our offering time, his whole theme here is that we're to live, we're to walk worthy of God. It's his kingdom, worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and glory, his glorious kingdom. It's a great kingdom. When you live here, everything then is under the rule of God. We're to live worthy of him. He's the king. 
And he's a glorious king and it's a glorious kingdom. So everything that he rules and every way that he rules and every rule that he has and every command is good for us. It's glorious and it will help us. And he says, so, so now I even want you to grieve under the lordship of Christ. There's a way to grieve. And he says, now, now I'm just not just imposing this on you. Here's the rule about grieving. I want to tell you what's true. And once you know what's true, once you really get that, once you're informed about that, then you'll grieve in a way that's worthy of God. See, his prayer for them all about is that they would increase and abound in love for one another so that, you remember, at the coming of Christ, they may may be found blameless in holiness. And so he's been talking to them about living worthy of the Lord, that is living a holy life, living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And and what he desires, he says, your love must increase. So this applies to your expressions of sexuality. Sexual immorality is unloving to one another. So love each other, grow in love, and thus you'll be found blameless in holiness. That's worthy of the Lord. If you can work, work. Not working when you can work is unloving. If you're taking from others who are working at that time. Now, if you're not able to work or there is no work, then you can be helped. But but, but his point is, if you're able to work and there is work, then work. Not do would be unloving. So to increase in love is to work when you can work. And now he's saying, here's how to love one another, even in the midst of grief. I'm going to give you words to encourage each other, and here's how you're to grieve. And if you grieve like this, then people will see, and that will be an expression. Even in your grief of love to one another, that's living, that's walking worthy of God under his lordship, you see, in this way. And now... Not everyone, I suspect, has lost someone. Perhaps not everyone has had that experience. Many, most perhaps, but not. But when we talk about these things, it's important for us to realize that when we mention death, it it stirs. Right? Of all the things that stirs, death discussions of death stir because if you've if you've lost someone close there's there's always this 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 sense of loss really i miss them i miss what we had i miss what we now don't have we begin to think about that and that it brings back all kinds of emotions really and there can be this sense of guilt even did i do enough while they were alive Oh, I should have done this, or I should have said that, or I shouldn't have done this, and I shouldn't have said that. And so even, you know, again, how can we be casual as we come together in the name of the Lord to worship when this is our theme, that this is our topic? This is just real, isn't it? 
And if you haven't lost anyone, and even if you haven't, if you haven't lost anyone, and this kind of topic comes up, your mind can't help but, unless you just shut things out completely, which our culture is always telling us to do about death. But, but when, when this is discussed and when it's in our heads, we can't help but realize that as we look down the years that we will lose people we love. Now, I I wouldn't uh, encourage you to dwell on this all the time. Like every time you see somebody, to go up and hug them and say, oh, just one last hug because, you know, I might not see you tomorrow. Uh, Although that could be true at a certain moment in time, of course. But, 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 but really, we can't help but think about that. And just in these moments and in pre- preparation for that time, the apostles don't realize that this death thing is, is a real thing. Death of belief is going to help you with that, but, but it's a real thing. And so, so we can't help but think about the fact that some, some will, will die. You know, it's fascinating to me, and I'm a little bit of a church nerd, as you know. And so I, I like to read annual reports of other churches. <laughs> I shouldn't admit that. Um, one thing we don't do because of really the, the, the demographic of our congregation, one thing that we don't do like other churches do, but, but other churches have a normal demographic or perhaps even an older demographic than ours is that they always list the numbers of people who've died during the course of that year in their annual report. Now we kind of do that. We just don't publish that. We have to give it to the nomination and all that sort of thing. And we, we just don't have many people, frankly, who pass away in our congregation yet. But it's, it's just true. I've had pastors who say that every year when they do this report, they begin to look at their congregation quite differently after reading that. They look out and they just wonder who's not going to be here next year. It's just the reality. And our minds think about that. And then, of course, we can't help avoid the obvious which that each one of us, unless the Lord comes while we're alive, each one of us is going to die. And so, so these questions of hope, then why live if that's the case? You know, why live if that's the case? Do we have any hope in the midst of this? Do we have any hope in this whole uh, midst of, of, of death, you see? Well, God isn't casual about death either. Um, He knows death intimately. And this is mysterious, profound, that God who is life knows death. And how does he know death? Most intimately by way of the death of Jesus, the very Son of God. And Jesus knew death intimately. And he knew death perfectly, meaning he knew death for what it was. He knew death was indeed the judgment of God against sin. He knew death was the wrath of God against the rebellion of humanity. He he knew that. When, When you think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and you wonder why he faced death, with such agony when others, other human beings who've not faced death with that kind of agony and that, that kind of revulsion, really, uh, uh, you wonder why did he in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, 
you know, sweat drops of blood as this expression of intensity. But because he, he knew that death was the judgment of God against sin. And he knew that he was going to face the very wrath of God. Jesus was repulsed by death. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 earlier, that death is the last enemy. It's, 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 it's an enemy. Now sometimes you say, no, 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 death is a friend because, because when someone is really suffering, death is, is, is could we say it like this, a, a good thing. We anticipate, we pray for that at times when someone's really suffering. And the answer to that, of course, contextually, yes, death may seem better than the suffering. And it is, as we'll see in a minute, for the believer. May I just say parenthetically, death is never a relief of suffering for an unbeliever. Maybe a relief of our suffering as we watch them. But it, it, it really isn't. Now let me say again, parenthetically, that I'm not going to talk about that today, the death of an unbeliever, because that's not our context. It's about death of believers. And there's a way to talk about that, and maybe we'll pick that up sometime. But this sense of, yes, death being this uh, relief, and certainly we can think of it like that. But, but really, death is 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 the enemy of of life. Thus, the enemy of God, who is life. And we realize that that death is this judgment of God against sin. Adam and Eve, they were given life, and they were told in the Garden of Eden, "Here's this wonderful place. Here's this tree of life." Now, you get life, right? If you trust God. You trust God as God. You live worthy of him. You trust God as God. And you don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because you see, defining good and evil is God's prerogative. You are not the measure, Adam and Eve, of, of life. You're not the judge of life. God is. He's the one who determines what's good and evil. And what did they do? They rebelled against God and said, no, no, no. We're going to be the measure of all things. We're going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to say what's good and what is evil. And we're going to turn against God not trust his word. But trust the word of the evil one. So, so once they did that injustice, God says, then you don't get life. And so death came. Spiritual death, which was a separation from the life that's in God. A separation from life that's in and from God. It was, it was a separation of physical life even. Because soul and body would be split, if you will. Body, die, soul. To exist. And it was a, a separation of one life from another. person dies. They leave, if you will. Consciously. They, they leave relationships with other people. So you see, death separates everything that God wanted to join together. He wants to join us with himself. He wants us to be joined body and soul. He wants us to be together. And, and all of that is separated, you see, by death. Death being uh, this enemy. Jesus knew it thus. He was said by the prophet Isaiah as a man who was acquainted with sorrow and grief. He knew it. He really did. It's amazing, isn't it, that, that Jesus wept. At the tomb of his friend Lazarus. What was amazing about that is that Jesus knew he was going to bring him back to life. It wasn't like a 
Jesus wasn't sitting there crying going, I know what I'll do now. I'll just raise him from the dead. That'll make everything better. He he knew that. He knew he was going to do that. That's why he went. But that profound expression. In fact, I remember as a little kid, that's one verse, John 11, 35. And if you ever had to quote a verse quickly, you know, like in Sunday school to get points, you would say, John 11, 35, Jesus wept. Because it was short and, you know, who didn't know that? And I always wondered as a kid, why only two words in that verse? I mean, I was grateful for it. I got points. But, 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 but why only two words? And I have no idea, really. Maybe I don't know that anybody has any real idea of who it was and how it was that we got chapter and verse. But I suspect that whoever was versing that day read those two words and said, Oh, they stand alone. Here is the very Son of God who knew everything. Entering into real life and said, no, death is an assault on the image of God. My friend has experienced it. And I'm profoundly sad. Jesus, Jesus knew it. So death brings Grief. Paul doesn't say that, that, that what we're going to about to learn, doesn't, it, he said it doesn't eliminate grief. We'll still grieve. There's still real loss. We're still real human beings. We really do love. And so because of all that, there'll be sadness. Also, in the face of this death, there is this an assault on life. We feel it no matter how good a death is. And there are some blessed are those who die in the Lord. There are some I've watched die. Great saints. And, and you think, hallelujah, they're with Jesus. This is great. But there is also something in the midst of that that says, this is also wrong. Death is an assault on the image of God. Now, because of the hope I have, the hope that Paul lays out for these saints, I'll, I'll say, yes, okay, a day will come and I can see them off into the future. And, and that, that makes this good. But at the same time, watching this saint have the life sucked out. There's something about that that you just want to scream. Jay Adams, a pastor, counselor of some note, has defined grief like this. He says, grief may be called a life-shaking sorrow over loss. Grief may be called a life-shaking sorrow over loss. Grief tears life to shreds. It, It shakes one from top to bottom. It pulls a person loose. He comes apart at the seams. Grief is truly nothing less than a life shattering Loss. When we have that, it's real. Okay? It's real. So Paul says you're going to grieve. And he doesn't give a formula like this, you know, you can have X number of tears per day, or it has to last this long, or this much wailing, or this much that, or this much. He says, now let me just explain something to you, that in the midst of the reality of that grief, is a gift from God. That will temper, mitigate, that will... Give you hope. 
that will affect how you grieve and how you and how you live. Hope, of course, is the expectation of future good. Right? You never hope for that which is bad. We may expect that which is bad, but we never hope for it when a student takes an exam. She may expect to fail, but deep down she hopes she'll pass. Right? If you have a job interview, you may expect not to get the job, past experience, personality, whatever it is about you, but you really do hope you're going to get the job. Right? Hope is always for something good. Yesterday, Karen and I did the stupid grandparent trick, trip and a trick, and we drove four hours to Des Moines so we could watch our grandson play soccer for 45 minutes. My expectations came true in the midst of that 45 minutes. He kicked the ball twice. I actually hoped he'd score a goal. Uh, right? That, that's just life, right? We, we hope for that which is good. And so the question is, what hope do we have in the midst of, of death? And what we find is that we have hope that we will live. We have hope that even in death, believers whom we know and love will live. We have the hope, we expect the good that will come is that thus living, we will be reunited or united or continue to be united with the Lord. No break in that. That we will be reunited with our bodies. Well, you may not think that's a big deal. Uh, I often look in the mirror and think, can't wait to lose that. But there's a body, you see. We're human beings. So we have that hope for that reunion after death, even, of soul and body. And we have the deep hope. And this is what Paul camps on, the deep hope of being united reunited with one another to know that as believers death does not separate us for eternity there is hope in that in that regard so what happens when we die well paul uh, talks about it as sleep uh, again this isn't an unconsciousness he's not talking about our souls sleeping but rather he's referencing our bodies death i mean sleep is a euphemism for for death and just a common one throughout various cultures throughout history people talk about sleep and death or death as, as sleep really probably it came from the stillness of the body we realize that our bodies are are, are are still after death it looks as if we're asleep and and we're we're actually placed in a cemetery uh, which means uh the sleeping place cemetery means the sleeping place and so it's a place where our bodies if you will sleep for christians there's a there's an interesting twist on this just figuratively because sleep gives the impressions of one day being awake jesus used this expression when he spoke of lazarus he says he's just sleeping he was dead. But he said, oh, he's just sleeping. I'm going to wake him up. You see? And, and there's a sense, you see, it's for believers we know we're sleeping. Conscious, 
Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in a, I'm sorry, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, in a fascinating passage. He's talking about there, I don't have time to read it, but he's talking there about, about this earthly tent of ours, this body. And when we die, we leave it behind. But we're unclothed. Now we're in the presence of the Lord, he says. When you die, a believer dies, believers in the presence of the Lord. And that's, that's a good thing. That, that's better than this. It's a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. It's good, but we're still unclothed. We still have this desire that we're in the presence of the Lord. We still have this desire to be clothed, to be fully human. Clothed, he means have a heavenly tent, a heavenly body, a heavenly building, a body, this imperishable body, which I read again from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 earlier in the service. And so, so he's saying we're, we're unclothed in the presence of the Lord after we die. That way Paul could also say, I'm, I'm, I'm torn, Philippians chapter 1. I'm torn. I, I could stay here and be of service to you, or I could, I could leave, I could die, if you will, I, and, and be in the presence of the Lord. And that's, that's better. But you see, we're still unclothed at that point. But then Paul's speaking here now. He says, brothers, we do not want you to be informed about those who are asleep, those who died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so we go, okay, those who have fallen asleep are with Jesus. Souls are with Jesus. So he can bring them. If, if they weren't with him, Paul would have had to say, Jesus will go get them and bring them. But he says, no, he'll just bring them, nothing in between. So he says, he says they're with him, in glory with him, Second Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul's emphasizing that the ground of this truth is Jesus. So you can be certain about this. This is a certain hope. This isn't a pie-in-the-sky hope. This is an 80% probability hope. This is a real hope because it's from the Lord. Paul didn't actually have to say that. Because everything else he was writing was scripture. Everything else he was writing was the word of God. But, but knowing, probably, our weakness. So I just emphasize this is from the Lord. A word from the Lord that we who are alive are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, it's no advantage to people living when Jesus returns. It's no disadvantage if you die before he returns. So if you die, you don't miss anything at the return of Christ. You're with him, you're coming with him. It's cool, you understand everything that's going on. You won't later on go, rats, I should never have died in whatever year. You know, I should have waited till Jesus returns kind of thing. No, no, there's no advantage to being alive when Jesus when Jesus comes back, they will not precede them. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. In other words, it's going to be so loud, he'll wake the dead. Right? So loud. It's not going to be, and I don't have time to get into this. It's not going to be secret. People aren't going to be wondering, where'd my believing friends go? Because you see, it's going to be so loud and so 
universal over the whole earth. I have no idea how this is going to happen. Right? I mean, really, think about it. Jesus shows up, but how are people like in China? Right? So, I mean, all over, everywhere. Dead people, live people. We're going to meet him, it says, we'll see, in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first. So now he's talking about rising. He's talking about resurrection. He's talking about bodies. He doesn't say anything about the resurrection bodies of those who are alive. But that's why I read 1 Corinthians 15. Because it says we'll all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. This imperishable body will come. We'll all be changed at the time. So we're talking about the second coming of Jesus. The parousia. The second coming of Jesus. We're talking about this huge event. Really loud. Everybody knows about it. The dead in Christ come, they're raised. The, those who are alive at the time, they get their new bodies. And look at what happens. Then, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And the clouds, of course, clouds in Scripture always connote the presence of the Lord. The Exodus cloud, right? The cloud around Mount Sinai. Every time God shows up big in the Old Testament, there's a cloud. And so this sense of cloud, is, this is the very presence of God, the presence of the Lord. And to meet the Lord in the air, probably not a casual reference, but Satan was known as the prince of the power of the air. And so we're going to meet in the air. We have mastery over him. He's done. And so this is it. This is the big deal. This is the second coming of Jesus. Parenthetically, don't go anywhere else with this passage. This doesn't say where Jesus went after they got him. It doesn't say where they went back to heaven. It doesn't say who came to earth. It just says, there we are. That's, be good with that. All right? That'll, that'll save you like buying 50 books in the next 10 years because everybody loves this passage and it goes everywhere. But just stop there. This is great. Because Paul has a point to make that he doesn't go deeper, I suspect. And the point is this. So we will always be with the Lord. At that moment in time, the enemy is utterly, utterly defeated. That is death in the lives of believers because you see what has happened at this moment in time that what death desires to do which is separate from life has been clearly overcome clearly overcome no separation between us and the Lord we're all together forever believers that have died Believers that were alive at this particular time, all together with the Lord. No separation from the Lord. No separation from bodies. Real, put together human beings with imperishable bodies, right? And reunited with each other for all eternity. And that's Paul's point. Paul's point is this, when a believer dies and you love them, this is how you should grieve. You're to grieve with one who knows you're going to be with them forever. That doesn't take away your grief at the moment. You miss them now. See, life is funny. Life is kind of a whole series of separations, isn't it? Every time every, we go to bed at night and we go to sleep, what happens? We, we're sort of separated from each other. Now, what gives you hope to go to sleep at night? You know you're going to wake up and the person you love... People you love are going to wake up too. 
And you're going to see them again. You wouldn't go to sleep if you thought, if I go to sleep, I'll never see them again. But, but you do. Why? What's your hope? Your hope is, I'll see them again. We'll get some rest. And actually, we'll be nicer to each other. Right? Because we've all gotten some sleep. You send your husband and your wife off to work in the morning. You wouldn't do that if you thought you'd never see them again. Your hope is that you'll see them again. You send your kids to school in the morning. You wouldn't do that if, if, if you thought you'd never see them again. On a good day. Right? But you'd never see them again. But you know, you'll see them again. Right? We do that. I mean, I'm this. I'm a, there are times I'm walking around our house in the wee hours of the morning. And come, I come back to bed. And Karen says, you miss the kids. I still. Sometimes I just miss them. And it wakes me up. I can't sleep. I go back to sleep. My only hope is I'll get to see them sometime, right? And so Paul says, you know this. And so what I'm telling you is that when death separates you from those you love and their believers, grieve. But not like you don't have hope. Because you do. You'll spend eternity with them. You really, really will. And the reason we know that is this is grounded on the fact that Christ has died and that he's risen. It's grounded on the fact that Christ has died and he's risen. I don't know if you go to many funerals of unbelievers or attend their death. You probably do. You probably have unbelieving friends, unbelieving family members and so forth. And so you've attended such funerals. And you know that almost everybody says we have hope because this one we've loved is in a better place. This one we love we'll see again and all that kind of thing. And it isn't really appropriate at that point in time, I suppose. But I always want to say, how do you know that? How do you know that? You see, the great thing about a Christian funeral is that we tell people how we know that. You know, when I do a funeral, as, as you know, if you've come to funerals at Grace, you know that I spend most of my time talking about Jesus. Not talking about the person who's died. A, because I may not know that person that well. And I don't want to say stuff that other people go, that wasn't Uncle Joe. And so I, I try to be careful not to say anything I don't know really personally about the person. I have other people share about that. But I, my job, my role in that is to tell people about Jesus. Why? Because that's the hope we have. He's the hope we have. No matter how wonderful the person who has died was, and we have buried some wonderful people. No matter how great they were, my hope for them is not in their wonderfulness. Right? My hope for them is in Jesus. So I spend my time reminding us about, about Jesus. 
Because you see, he died and rose again. His death means that our sins are forgiven, which means whoever believes is reconciled to God, which means that death can never separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Never. So, boop, that effect of death to separate us from God, destroyed. We can't be separated from him. You see? And soul and body. Death says, I'm going to separate you as a human being. I'm going to put your soul in and your body's going to be dead. You're going to feel unclothed. Well, the, because Jesus rose guarantees my resurrection, guarantees our resurrection. When it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus in the scripture, it speaks of him as the firstborn among many brothers. That is, there's others that will come after him like this that is resurrected. He's the first fruit of, of all those who will be resurrected. And so we know that his resurrection guarantees our resurrection, that he, this perfect man, this human being who died for us, rose. And when he rose, he rose as a, as a man with a body. And, and there he was. And so we'll rise too with, with real bodies. So we'll be reunited with this perfect, imperishable, incorruptible body. And you know what too? That when Jesus died and rose and we believed, we were joined together. Ephesians chapter 2, by the cross, God created one new man, all of us, together. We're the household of God. We're a holy temple in the Lord. We're joined together. We, as human beings, need each other. The reason, we, the reason we grieve the loss of those we love is because we know as human beings in the image of God we are to be fruitful and multiply. We need community. We need each other. Without that, we're lost and lonely. There's something deep within us, no matter how introverted we are. It says, no, we need each other. We grieve the loss of each other. And so that essential aspect of being human will not be destroyed by death because we'll be united together for all of eternity. And that by the work of Christ. The night that Jesus was betrayed when he was with his disciples, his death And being separated from them was on his mind. So what did he say? I go to prepare a place for you. And the reason I go to prepare a place for you is so we can all be together there. When he prayed in John 17, of his high priestly prayer, he prayed at the very end of that prayer. He says, I desire that they be with me that they may see my glory. Be together. And he was certain that that would be true. Why? Because he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, This is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And what he was saying here is, this is the guarantee that death will not win. It won't separate you from God. It won't separate you from your body. It won't separate you from each other. I give my life that you may live. So when we come to this table, what we're saying is, I believe that. That's really true. I know I'm going to die. But I have hope. Certain hope. Grounded hope. I know others I love will die. And if they die in the Lord, I'll grieve. It might be sometime in the wee hours of the morning, I'll be walking around thinking, I miss them. But I'll be able to get back into bed eventually because I'll know that I will be reunited with them. And I know it. Because the Lord said so. Let's pray, Father in heaven. Pray for me, for us, that we really would know it. Seems how fragile this knowing is at the moment. We need to know it most. So while some may be facing this imminently, most not, I pray we tuck this away so that we can encourage one another with it. And Father, I pray we receive the encouragement and live with the hope. So now, please, God. Take this bread and juice, set it apart in such a way that we do know that Christ has died and risen. Therefore, hmm, we needn't fear. And our grief will be a hopeful grief. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it. All those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. To receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And you desire to live worthy of God that is to live with hope. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections that come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. As you come, take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. And as you eat it, just remind yourself... Since Christ has died and risen, I have hope. Please come.